0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse and I'm so excited today. This is one of my all-time favorite shows because you are involved in everything that's going to be said today. When it comes to money, when it comes to finance, when it comes to the economy, when it comes to investment, you are directly involved. Some say and really believe that central banking has deteriorated the entire financial economy around the world. Some people say, if you're not invested in metals, you're not really invested in real money, and that we've actually lost the ability to exchange and to do business in real money, that the economy has been polluted and diluted. In fact, the Federal Reserve, we found out, is not federal. It's a private bank. It's actually a private agency that was taken by stealth in the middle of the night with our Congress. The facts are, that we are not living in an organic economy, we're living in a synthetic economy of credit default swaps, derivatives which have taken down industry after industry, high-frequency trading, um, securities that actually constrain people that want to bring new projects and products into the world. And the reality is that, thank God, crowdfunding is here. Crowdfunding that started by donation-based crowdfunding. And in September, Uh, September of 2013, on the 23rd, the equity crowdfunding laws changed. The JOBS Act allowed people to actually market their projects and companies. But the devil's always in the details. We have Sam Guzik with us today of Sam Guzik Law, of Sam Guzik and Associates, who's going to get under the hood. Of the new crowdfunding laws on an equity level, and he's gonna lay, he's gonna tell us where the rubber meets the road. Because in fact, this great opportunity that we were so excited about on an equity level is not quite what we think it is. It's exciting if you like a tiny, tiny portal into potential. We're also gonna talk about the most exciting cryptocurrency, payment system, trading platform, Bitcoin. Bitcoin has been around for five years. It is considered by some the money of the now and the future. Some look at it as the escape from the Federal Reserve, central banking, hostage-making, lockdown on all of humanity. So many people are in prayer and hoping that Bitcoin is the savior to help us move our money inexpensively to create another currency which can't be inflated. There's so much hope and so much tension and so much desire for Bitcoin to work. Some are skeptical, some say it's the mark of the beast, some say that the government is already involved in it. Some say that no matter what you do, that we're going to be legislated out of business, that there's no way to get out of the control grid. The reality is that Bitcoin may be just an incredibly exquisite collective transition system into something else. But what is that something else? And how do, we keep, how do we stay away from being inflated to death? On the show, I have invited Andreas Antonopoulos, who is a Bitcoin visionary, who's going to talk to us about cryptocurrency. He's a programmer of high order. Dave Scotties, who is a programmer and a Bitcoin trader, who's joining us from Riverside, California. He's the founder of Litmocracy. We have Sam Gozek of Gozek and Associates who's going to talk to us about crowdfunding and we also have God help us all Reggie Middleton of Boom Bus Blog. He's considered the Nostradamus of finance. He is the one who called the collapse of Bear Stearns and the housing market crisis. He warned the public about the fall of Lehman Brothers. He is. He has made a call to short Apple at its all-time high. He makes distinctions that people don't never knew before about the mobile computing industry, and he has talked about how Facebook and Goldman Sachs have been overvalued. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Reggie Middleton to its rainmaking time. Welcome.
1: Hello. How are you?
0: <laughs> I, I, I'm more excited than you sound. But
1: <laughs>
0: you're so calm. Okay. I think you're I think it's good that you're doing the trading and the analysis. You're I mean, are you sleeping? What's going on there?
1: Well, but anyway I, make, I, I was listening to your introduction, I'm like, wow, I'd love to meet that guy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think he's here with us. <laughs> well, first of all, you know, we've had you on a year and a half ago. We had a very long ninety minute discussion about the banking system and about the marketplace, the sovereign debt crisis, and I want to understand, first of all, your take on what Bitcoin is, and then we'll get to why you've created a product or some type of a prototype to attach or connect with Bitcoin. First of all, what is it in your view, Reggie?
1: Uh, Bitcoin is a digital currency based upon uh, cryptographic science, cryptography, and uh, it's uh probably one of the most severely misunderstood hot media topics of the last few years more so than probably the you know the bank crisis the sovereign debt crisis and everything um the reason is people focus on bitcoin as a currency as if it's the u.s dollar or the euro or the renminbi or the yen and that's not what it is it's uh a currency, a digital currency in part, but the more exciting part, the more evolutionary part, the more revolutionary part, is that it has its own transmission system as well. It's a protocol. Um, this is an analogy that I've used on, you know several times, and I'll use it here because I think it, it's a point home, um, particularly to lay people who are not you know, experts in cryptography, which is probably 99.999% of the population, including myself. Um, imagine if you had a car, you had two cars. Um, one car is a Mercedes Benz and it normally goes for $110,000 steady in price over the last few years. Um, high quality. A lot of people use it. Then you have another car called uh, a wrestler that nobody's heard of. Um, last year the car was selling for $20,000 this year, the car is selling for 1.2 million dollars. And then you have everybody who's up in an uproar or oh, this car is a Ponzi scheme and it's a bubble and, you know, it's run up, you know, 20, 30, 40 times in price. Uh, it's worth it. You know what's going to happen. And these uh, characterizations, uh, these perceptions are plausible. You know, it definitely looks bubblish just when something goes from say, $20 to $1,200, and then back to $600, up to 800 But if you take a look at it as a currency, uh, like the U.S. dollar or the euro, you know, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. But imagine if this car, right, comes with its own roads, and these roads belong to the car. Only this car can travel along these roads, and these roads allow the car to go through all over town, any town, through any city, through any state through any country, any continent, all over the world, overseas, over oceans, through rivers. Um, it pays practically no tolls whatsoever. keeps any bridge, any toll. As a matter of fact, this car could go anywhere. There's an Internet connection. Okay, so not only can it go anywhere in the world that you have an Internet connection, not only do you not pay or pay tolls that are so minimal that you don't even recognize them, um, but this car is also faster than all the other cars in the world. And this car can be used at any time you want, okay? Not just during banking hours where the other car is, uh, not during uh, times where, not just during times when the government wants you to be able to clear a deal, such as the Cypress um, debacle where you had the bail-ins. But this car is available 24 hours a day, um, secure. Now, if you compare these two cars now, would a car be worth $1.2 million if it could bring you anywhere, almost instantaneously? With hold, no
0: hold on one second, Reggie. D- can you pull in Dave Scotese from Litmocracy? Dave, do you agree with all what right. Reggie just said? Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Yes, uh, I think that he he described it very well as a car. I think I want to get one of those cars. <laughs> <laughs> We're all going
0: to get one. Now, Reggie, so I hear wait. you're buying the cars for us. Is that true? Wait, I, I already have one. You have one? <laughs> I sure do. <laughs> Now tell us you're a programmer, Dave. Why do you think that Reggie's right about this?
2: Well, because he is right about it, it's, uh, like he, he called it a protocol, which I don't know if a lot, if a lot of people understand what, what that means to us, computer geeks. Um, a protocol just means that's a way of doing things. So we have a protocol for email, and everybody's familiar with email. It's like, it's like the Pony Express or you know, the mail system. Um, but just like he said, it's lickety-split, and it costs almost nothing. Uh, so we're all familiar with email, and uh, Bitcoin is basically, you know, email for, for currency.
0: I want to go to Andreas Antonopoulos, who has actually said that Bitcoin is the Internet of money, not money for the Internet. Am I correct, Andreas?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Bitcoin is a system for people to transact money. Uh, from anywhere to anywhere in the world instantaneously with uh, little or no fees. And, but um, the currency of Bitcoin is just the first application. Just like on the Internet, email was just the first application. Internet isn't email. It's much more than that. Well, Bitcoin isn't just a currency. It's much more than that. And you can do a lot more uh, things on top of the Bitcoin network than just the currency. But the currency itself is is revolutionary.
0: Uh, You're such a huge advocate about Bitcoin, Andreas. And Reggie, I know you are, and Dave, you are, since, uh, you know, you're all in. But you're in also with caution, you're in with forbearance, you're in with excitement. Now, Andreas, why do you, when you give your talks, talk about Bitcoin possibly, you know, dissolving out? It's a transitional platform or medium and then really cryptocurrency of the future coming out of that. I heard in one of your talks you talk about that.
3: Well, I'm not going to necessarily pick winners and losers right now, um, because uh, things are very early in this uh, particular space. But the point on the sand here is that uh, the word Bitcoin really refers to three different things. Uh, there's Bitcoin, the currency, and this currency runs on top of Bitcoin, the network and platform, uh, which is the Internet of Money. And this is based on an idea, an invention, invented in 2008, which is the system uh, that creates Bitcoin. Uh, which allows people to have consensus or agreement across the distributed system, and if the currency fails, the network will spawn another currency, and if the network fails, the invention still exists, and already we 're seeing more than one hundred alternative implementations of this currency, so um, just like tomorrow, if email went away, the internet would still be there, and if the physical network of the internet went away the the invention and the understanding of its value would still be there. Um, Bitcoin is a lot more than just a currency, and I think it can survive. Um, but, you know, as, as we see right now, uh, it's, it's growing very, very fast. It's in year five, and I think it's already established a level of adoption and awareness in the public that is going to be pretty much unstoppable.
0: You know, Robo, Robocoin started, which is the Bitcoin ATMs, and they're pumping them out all around the world. And in Robocoin, you have to actually authenticate through uh biometrics now some yeah, that's pe- an
3: optional feature it depends on the country where it's deployed and there's uh, there's many other atms too
0: oh i didn't know that okay so my question is this some people say and reggie i want you to pipe in on this too and dave that because of because of the inner workings of bitcoin that there are something called distributed blockchains what is a distributed blockchain why is it relevant let's start with you dave
2: Uh, The blockchain is a database. Um, You can think of it as a public ledger. Actually, it is a public ledger. Um, I mean, anybody that's running a business knows in their ledger they have several accounts, and they might move money from one account to another in order to allocate some profits to marketing or whatever. Um, Bitcoin works the same way, uh, and the blockchain is that public ledger. Uh, And uh, the next thing people should be thinking is, you know, well, how does – If, if my, if my ledger on my business was public, you know, I'd have people coming in and moving money around willy-nilly and I wouldn't have control of my business anymore. So how do we stop that? And, um, that's where the, the Bitcoin protocol comes in, where in order to move money out of an account, you have to know the secret for that account. And that, because of dual key cryptography, the secret never needs to be given to anybody. It's just used and it proves that you own the, the account. That the Bitcoin is leaving. Um, and so once you once you, you know, give that proof to the, to the Internet, uh, it, get, it gets into the database and then the whole database and everybody who has a copy of it knows that this Bitcoin has moved from your account to somebody else's account. So that's what the blockchain is. It's a public ledger that keeps track of all the transactions.
0: Somebody asked me just yesterday, can't it be hacked and why can't it be hacked? And I said, I don't think so. And they said, of course it can. And I'd like Andreas to answer that. And then I want to have a question for you, Reggie, about your product. Okay. Uh, it's, not,
3: it's not as if no one's trying. I mean, everybody's been trying to hack Bitcoin for the last five years non uh, It's one of the hottest targets for hackers around the world. And the reason for that is because it's the ultimate stealable money. When you have extremely fluid currency that can be transferred anywhere in the world in seconds, and disappeared into that transactional network of course people are going to steal it and at the moment the the network is worth almost uh, ten billion dollars and yet no one has claimed that bounty think about it as a bounty if you were able to hack bitcoin you would have access to ten billion dollars worth of funds that should be enough to motivate everyone in the world to try and they already have so the system is robust it's based on some simple mathematical rules and underlying it are encryption primitives that are used not just to secure bitcoin but the same encryption systems are used to secure all of banking institutions all of the wire transfers in the world all of the nuclear missiles in the world are based on the same encryption primitives their security so you know hacking bitcoin lots of people tried not so easy apparently
0: reggie what did you create in terms of your product and why Why are you invested in this new prototype for Bitcoin? Explain what it is. It's called a zero what? Zero cost. What What is it?
1: These are zero trust contracts. Zero trust contracts.
0: Sorry about that. Explain it to us.
1: They're um, basically a way of making a financial deal with another party that you do not have to trust at all. As a matter of fact, you don't have to know who they are. The... One of the again, as I was explaining, Bitcoin, where a lot of people are focusing on as a tradable currency, capital loss, capital game, um, that's interesting, but that's not what caught my eye. What caught my eye is the fact that Bitcoin is programmable. It's smart money, in direct contravention to what I would call dumb fiat money, the typical uh, coins and paper that you used to. Let's pick on a dollar, because that's you know the deepest most liquid currency available. Um, a dollar bill is. Dumb. It's a piece of paper. If I, if we have a transaction, I buy a car from you. Um, I give you ten dollars. Uh, you give me. I give you ten dollars for the car. You give me the car. I drive off. Five seconds later, the car transmission drops. Up. I have two alternatives. I can uh, ask you to give me the money back, or we can fight over it. You know, anywhere from uh, physical fight to litigation, arbitration. You know, court of law. But um, I'm at a loss If so you voluntarily give it back. That's a trust issue. With Bitcoin, you, there's a scripting language where you can ask the currency to do specific things according to an agreement or a contract, and it will actually do it. So now I can give you, uh, say, one Bitcoin for that car, okay? and I can program it to say that one Bitcoin will not be spendable okay, by either party until we both agree that the transaction has been uh, fulfilled. You know, it's supposed to both of satisfaction.
0: So, is this or, really an escrow account? Is it kind of like an attorney escrow account for Bitcoin?
1: No, it's actually very different because an attorney escrow account needs an attorney. You need a third party <laughs> that you trust. These are zero <laughs> trust contracts. So, there's no need to trust anybody. Not your attorney, not my attorney, not the bank that you put the escrow account in that would give you counterparty risk, not the other side, and not even yourself. Again, zero trust. Mathematical like, escrow. What, right. what, what
0: was that? What, what was that? Who was that? Math. That was Dave.
2: Dave says, mathematical escrow.
1: Right. Oh, wow. In, in layman's terms, you take the money, and it sits on the blockchain, which is that general ledger. And it stays there until we're all satisfied that the deal is done, and then we sign off on it, and then the money is released to whichever party, depending on the contract goes. That's a simple contract. These contracts can get very, very complicated, uh, very complex. I'm sorry, not complicated. And you can do a lot of wonderful things. Right now, what we've instituted was where we can swap exposure. So if I have a million U.S. dollars and I want to get into Bitcoin, I buy Bitcoin and now I have Bitcoin and now I can swap my exposure back into U.S. dollars. This allows you to hedge the volatility of Bitcoin into the U.S. dollars. So it's as if I still have my U.S. dollars in terms of volatility, but I physically or digitally still hold the Bitcoin. This could be done with any of two dozen fiat currencies. So you can do a variety of very interesting things, such as you can trade back and forth, but just the exposure with any fiat currency you want. Um, you don't have to worry about counterparty risk because the principal and the collateral is locked into the blockchain. So you don't have to worry about other side defaulting, changing their mind, you know, having piano lessons when it's time to come for settlement or anything else. Um, I was so excited when we first got this first walk to work. I didn't speak for three days because I see this as a uh, potential to recreate the entire banking system through uh, software and cryptographic means. There's so many things that you rely on banks for that you don't have to rely on for. And more importantly, so many things that banks and financial institutions overcharge you for. Um, I'm about to put up tomorrow a plan of putting up a post to my blog that explains how I dot Overstock.com, which is an internet retailer. They do about billion a billion dollars a in revenue, and they were the first major retailer to accept Bitcoin last Friday, Friday before last. Um, on the day they opened up, they did $130,000 of revenue, Bitcoin only, um, 840 new um, customers. And it's phenomenal. that's phenomenal. New business for one day. The problem is it was very volatile. You know, Bitcoin is very volatile. So they decide that they want to uh, translate the Bitcoin back to U.S. dollar. Well, this product allows them to keep it in Bitcoin, hedge into the U.S. dollar if they wish, and it drops their transaction cost significantly. Mm-hmm. So this product adds about between 15% and 30% to Overstock's bottom line and allows them to accept Currencies from uh, a wide array of people. Overstock has a 1.9% net margin. A lot of their competitors, such eBay, actually have negative margins. So I can actually give them a profit where they had a loss and expand their um, potential customer base. This sounds transaction costs.
0: This sounds like a new industrial complex. Andreas, the Winklevoss brothers are, I guess, they have a percent interest in Bitcoin now, and they want to start a Bitcoin ETF. And, Reggie, I also want you to respond to this. And uh, my question is, what do you think the regulators are going to do? H- I mean, do you think this is a transitioning currency? Well, I was hoping
3: we'd talk more about uh, smart contracts and uh, counterparty risk. But if you want to talk no, about I'm, the Winklevoss Brothers, no, 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 no,
0: not so much about that. It's just that I just <laughs> find it interesting that they want to create an ETF. I thought yes. Reggie would so, find that interesting. But go ahead
3: so there, there's a lot of uh, there 's a lot of people at the moment trying to uh, create various uh either actively managed ETFs or passively manage more like uh, index funds that uh, closely track the exchange rates of Bitcoin and allow you to own Bitcoin. Um, you know, the, the goal here is to allow institutional money uh, to invest in Bitcoin, because while a consumer will look at Bitcoin and think this is very volatile, it's kind of scary. Uh, certainly if you're an inexperienced investor, uh, it can be very scary. It's a very high beta investment. But to a portfolio manager who's managing an entire diversified portfolio, having a high-beta asset to put in their portfolio is extremely attractive because they're going to manage that as part of a diversified portfolio. So the beta doesn't scare them. The volatility doesn't scare them. In fact, what it does is it allows them to make money off it. (laughs) So what we're looking for is mainstream acceptance of Bitcoin, where, you know, a teacher's fund or a fireman's union can uh, can put a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of their money into Bitcoin through normal and legal channels I think we're going to see that in 2014 there's already dozens of organizations trying to do this and they're not just trying to do it in the US they're also trying to do it in various other international markets and um, you know for institutional investors the world is one big market so If the SEC doesn't allow it to be listed here in the U.S. on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ or some other market like that, then it's going to be listed overseas in other markets. That's the thing about Bitcoin. It's very fluid. Uh, In either case, I think institutional money will be flowing into Bitcoin in 2014.
0: I'd like to call upon Sam Guzik, who's here, who's an SEC attorney in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Sam, I'd like to know this is the first time you're really hearing deeply into Bitcoin. What do you think, since you know the SEC so well, what do you think that they would say to this?
4: well i mean as far as uh, etfs I, I don't i don't think they'd have any particular issue with it other than disclosure disclosure of what it is how it works and what the risks are um but uh, it's something that's obviously here to stay. It's in its beginnings. And it sounds to me like this is going to be huge, uh, both in the U.S. and globally.
0: Do you, do you think the SEC is going to try to block the use of Bitcoin or somehow get involved or start punishing or fining businesses that are using it at a certain point?
4: No, no. I don't, I don't think so. The, the SEC is, is mainly about protecting people through disclosure. Um, and uh, so I, I, don't think the, I don't think the SEC is going to be an impediment. I think they're going to be a facilitator, but it will take them some time to get up to speed. They will be cautious. Their interest is in protecting the investing public. Uh, so, therefore, they're going to want to understand it thoroughly. Um, so I expect they will, they will move with it, but they will move slowly.
0: They barely understand crowdfunding, isn't that true? <laughs>
4: well, they're, they're, they're starting to learn more than they ever wanted to, I can tell you that.
0: <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, yeah. we're going to go to a quick break, and we'll be right back. I wanted to share with you about a company called Essential Mother Earth at EssentialMotherEarth.com. And I want you to consider that now that we have so much evidence that we are not only electrical bodies, but we are light bodies, and that we are living in a very huge assault environment of electromagnetics, of of cell phone towers, of microwaves, of Wi-Fi's, of all of this stuff. And the body is not receiving this very well because this is not meant for biological systems. EssentialMotherEarth.com provides health and wellness products And one of the products that I want to recommend you take a look at is called Auralite, which enhances your vibration. It enhances your auric field. We know that there is an auric field. We know that this is measurable. And we know that we are electric beings made of light. So if you want to enhance your light body, go and get Auralite from Essential Mother Earth. And for those of you interested in the necklace that I'm wearing, it's made of magnetite and hematite. And uh, rare jewels that actually form a loop, it actually forms a circuit to prevent radiation from entering your body. So men could get them for uh, uh, bracelets, and there's also necklaces in different colors. Go to EssentialMotherEarth.com. They're a great couple that runs the company. And for those of you that also would like Magnetite and want to charge your water, they have Magnetite. They have many, many fascinating products that I use and love. So go to EssentialMotherEarth.com. And back to the show. Dave Scotties. what is your answer to... If you think Satoshi is a real person or Satoshi is simply a figment of our imagination and this whole thing was created by DARPA. Some people say DARPA created this whole thing. This is a grand experiment and we are not aware that we're being experimented with to form a one world system. Do you agree or disagree?
2: Um, Well, I have to take a middle road. I don't think that DARPA would have created Bitcoin as it exists today because it um, disperses too much power to too many individuals that are not under the control of the U.S. government, which is, you know, DARPA's master. Um, So on the face of it, I think that's kind of silly. Um, As far as Satoshi Nakamoto, whether that's one person or a group of people, I, you know, considered both sides a tiny bit, but it doesn't seem... It doesn't seem like an interesting path of inquiry because, I mean, who who cares? The idea that Satoshi Nakamoto came up with is brilliant, and and I love it, and I think everybody here thinks it's a great idea, so... I leave
0: it at that. I I think you're right, actually, and I think if he uh, if he is a real living, breathing person, he was correct to not be involved and have his personality and uh, his being involved because that's somebody that uh, people could go after if they wanted to do that, and who knows what would happen. Reggie, why do you call this new product that you've created a form of arbitrage? Would you explain what arbitrage is to the public, and then because arbitrage, I used to remember. Years ago, I thought arbitrage was bad. But you're saying it's a form of arbitrage. So what is it?
1: Well, arbitrage is a way of taking advantage of inefficiencies that are in the market. Uh, Basically, you make two transactions at the same time or close to the same time um, on uh, the same or very, very similar product. And you capture a spread or a difference in price. And basically that uh, that. Closes the inefficiency if done enough times. For instance, if uh, you can use a car example again, uh, if you have you're in California and they're selling cars, selling Mercedes, and 560 sls for 120 thousand dollars, and then in New York they're selling the exact same car, same model, same color, same year for 150 thousand dollars. To so arbitrage that opportunity, you would buy business in California and at the same time sell it to somebody in New York. And you capture a $30,000 spread without, theoretically, without taking any risk because you're buying and selling at the same time. So, uh, what my product allows you to do is to do the same thing if you find inefficiencies, such as uh, a difference in the price of Bitcoin between one exchange and another, or a difference in the price of uh, another fiat currency that could be translated into Bitcoin in two different areas. So you, you buy in one spot, you sell in the other spot, same product, um, same situation, the only delta difference being the price, and then you capture the difference in the price.
0: Okay, and uh, Andreas, can you talk to us about what Moore's Law is and explain it? Because I heard you talk about it. I remember George Gilder very much introducing Moore's Law. Can you explain it to the public for us?
3: Sure. Uh, Gordon Moore uh, was the founder of uh, Intel, and uh, he posited that uh, computer density or the, the density of a silicon chip uh, or the transistors on a silicon chip would double every 18 months. Um, so either you can look at it two ways. Either computers get twice as powerful every 18 months or uh, the, the same computer costs half the price after 18 months. And we've been on track and seeing Moore's Law sometimes faster, sometimes slower, uh, since this was first predicted by, back in 1960. 1960- 1970-something. <laughs> and, uh, and Gordon Moore really uh, set, set the terms for what it meant to have a technological revolution and how uh, silicon chip density has led to miniaturization, uh, lower energy use, etc., in all electronic devices, which makes things like the iPhone uh, possible today. Uh, Bitcoin itself uses computation to achieve trust. So Moore's law applies to uh, how fast that computation can increase over time, uh, and that supports the security of the Bitcoin network. Uh,
0: And I'd like, Dave, can you talk about why you feel or don't feel that, that Bitcoin is private? There's, it seems like there, there seems to be available where you can see everything that a company or a person is doing. I understand the kinds of the transparency, but I don't think businesses need to show every time they make a transaction. Isn't that private?
2: Sure. Uh, I think Bitcoin, I would consider Bitcoin private. And it's really, it, it puts the choice into the hands of the person who owns the account. If I own an account, I can prove it. Um, and if I prove, if I broadcast that proof to the world, then everybody knows that's my account. And whatever goes into it and goes out of it, they know that I'm doing that because it's my account. But if I don't broadcast the fact that I own that account, nobody knows who owns it. Um, they, I can tell people, but they don't know it because I haven't proven it. As long as I don't offer the proof, you know, it, it's anybody can guess. Uh, and, and that proof, there's a – the way that you prove it is you sign – something with uh, the private key of the address. If I don't do that, then, you know, that's the proof's not there. So it's my choice whether or not my Bitcoin transactions are private related to that one address. And, you know, I could do that with lots of addresses. So it leaves leaves the choice in the hand of the individual.
0: Reggie, do you feel that Bitcoin is private enough?
1: Well, it's a very relative question. Private enough for what?
0: For, in other words, do you want do you want every transaction of your business known to all the people who look inside the Bitcoin transaction? I've, I've never been in it, so I, I don't really know what I'm referring to. But I would imagine it would be a long list of everybody's transactions, right?
1: Yeah, there is a long list. There's, there's, the blockchain is supposed to be a permanent list of all transactions on the uh, Bitcoin network. But again, as the other guest just said, these are... Um, Long cryptographic uh, strings, like hash strings, um, a string of maybe, what, 25 to 50 um, alphanumeric symbols. And unless you, again, come out with your own, I, unless you identify yourself, nobody knows who you are. You can see there are a lot of transactions, but you don't know which transaction belongs to who. So you have a string of, say, 50 alphanumeric symbols. You don't know if that's Reggie Middleton or if that's Santa Claus.
0: Uh Andreas you had shared something in one of your speeches about there's a certain protocol that you use to make sure I think you use different machines for for using bitcoin do you remember talking about how you would plug in one machine that you were, you were doing something to keep it private. Do you remember what so, that so was? There are,
3: yeah, there are a lot of uh, different mechanisms for keeping your transactions private. As Reggie said, you know, just because it's a transaction list that shows that a certain account number sends money to another account number, it doesn't really help because an individual can have thousands, tens of thousands, millions of different accounts, and these accounts are in no way identified to the individual, so actually tracking anything is pretty hard. But beyond that, uh, it's pretty easy to use various technologies to remix your transactions. So instead of uh, sending a transaction directly from one person to another, what you can do is you can mix it with hundreds of other transactions, and then, uh, you know, in that particular environment, uh, you protect your privacy. It can still be tracked uh, lawfully, uh, you know, with a subpoena, but, but at the same time, Um, You know, someone just looking at the blockchain and looking at the list of transactions can't figure out what money is going where. So, as as David said, the, the owner of the Bitcoin has the choice. They can either have a fully transparent environment, and that's actually really useful for charities to use open accounting, or perhaps for publicly listed companies to show their accounts payable and accounts receivable where appropriate. Um, But it's not appropriate for others, you know. And if you're a private individual and you don't want everyone to be able to track your transactions, even if it's quite difficult to do so, then you can take privacy measures from the simple to the very extreme, very strong anonymity and privacy within Bitcoin. It has a whole range.
0: And, gentlemen, we're going to now open up what we call our Starship Bridge. And I'd like to know if anybody's there and has a question.
5: Yes, I do. My name is Terry Woodward. For someone lacking a computer savvy, explain how the Bitcoin, please, is acquired and utilized in a transaction by a consumer and who sets the value.
3: So uh, so the way you would use uh, Bitcoin as an individual you can download some software to your computer or your smartphone. Uh in order to get Bitcoin there are really three different ways to do that. Uh one is to to open up a type of brokerage account on a Bitcoin exchange and then wire some US dollars to it and then uh buy Bitcoin. Uh, with those us dollars at the prevailing market price a second way is to use localbitcoins.com, which is like a craigslist type service where you can find people in your area plug in your zip code it will tell you who around you will buy or sell bitcoin you can find say a seller with a hundred positive reviews who's willing to meet you at a public place like a starbucks or a park you hand them a hundred bucks they give you the equivalent amount in bitcoin Safe, secure instance. A third way, of course, is if you have a skill that people want to buy for Bitcoin, then you can sell that service or product um, for Bitcoin and start a little Bitcoin business, or take your existing bit- business and start charging in Bitcoin. So those are the three predominant ways to get it. Uh, a transaction basically looks a bit like sending an email. So you say, I want to send to this account. I want to send this much Bitcoin, and you hit enter, and off the Bitcoin goes. And a second later, it pops up in the other account, and you can see that the other person has received it. And you can do that in person with a smartphone, or you can even get their account over email and send it to them, even if they're on the other side of the planet. Um, finally, the price is determined simply based on the market dynamics, just the same way that the price of IBM stock or the exchange rate between the US dollar and the Euro is determined simply based on how much the last two parties who exchanged it were willing to pay to each other for that uh, exchange, that trade. So it's a free market, it's an open market, like a stock market. Uh, Bitcoin is traded 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. The market never closes. And at all times, you can go and see, uh, for example, by going to a site like bitcoinaverage.com, you can see the current price of Bitcoin uh, across dozens of exchanges around the world In a number of different currencies So dollars, euros, or yen, or uh, or whatever
2: I just wanted to say that If you find somebody that has Bitcoin They're going to set a price And if you look at the rest of the market You might decide, well, that price is too high for me Or you might take it, you know And that's true of everybody who has Bitcoin And is willing to sell it to you so who determines the price? It's the same as you know, anything else, milk or eggs or whatever. You go to different stores, you get different prices because everybody selling it has their own, their own needs.
5: Thank you. It sounds like from what I've heard today from you folks is that Bitcoin almost is is flawless. And one of the things as an attorney I'd be interested in is the the no-trust contract. It sounds like while the terms are trying to be met, the uh, Bitcoin's held in abeyance, if I understand, in the blockchain. And once the conditions are met, then the Bitcoin is released. Am I correct on that? Reggie? Yeah, that's,
3: that's pretty much how smart contracts okay.
5: work. All right, my question is then, what if the conditions are not met? Then you have this Bitcoin held in abeyance, and you have an international contract dispute.
1: Well, there are several ways you could do it. Um, from the simplest way, is if the conditions are not met, um, and the conditions are not met due to, let's say, fraudulence or negligence of one party, um, there's an incentive not to be negligent because your funds are put at risk as well. In my contract, each side puts up money, they put up principal, they put up collateral. So if I try and cheat you, it's not as if I don't get your money, I don't get my money as well. Okay, so there is no financial incentive for me to be negligent or fraudulent. Okay, there's also another way of doing it, but using a third party called an oracle, which is a non-interested party and a party that is unbiased and doesn't have any stakes in um, any interest in either party or stakes in the transaction. And that could be a decision maker, an arbitrator. Okay, so there are various ways to go about it. My contract's very simple in that um, it's a financial transaction and once the contract is entered, there's no way to back out of it. No, enter the contract. You set a uh, expiry date. The state expiry is three hours. And in three hours, I swap U.S. dollars or I swap euro for Bitcoin. Well, if Europe goes up to Bitcoin, then the, whole, the person on the euro side will have a profit and the person on the US dollar side will have a loss. There's no way to back out of the contract. Um, it doesn't matter whether you agree with it or disagree with it. The contract is done at the end of the expiry, there's a settlement in cash and cash would be Bitcoin in this particular instance. Thank but you. if it's uh, something a little more uh, complex that has a physical asset such as the import or exporter where you use uh, my contracts as a literal credit. And somehow upon delivery, you find that there is not true uh, specific performance, then you can use an oracle, which is a third party. Okay, but again, realize that when both sides have to put up principal and collateral, there is no financial incentive uh, to um, fraud because okay. you're out of your own capital. Uh,
0: did, did you get your question answered? And do you have another? First of all, did you get your question answered? Yes, thank you. And do you have another question? Yes,
5: I have one more question. Okay. I've heard all of you say that there's been many attempts to hack into Bitcoin, but as a consumer uh, who is naive and, you know, I see advertisements for a Bitcoin ads all over the place now, it hasn't been hacked. But that sounds to me uh, as the old adage, the uh, unsinkable ship well, the Titanic sank. If it can be, uh, usually uh, it, it is. So, how would you, uh, all of you, address that? That just because it hasn't been hacked, doesn't mean it won't be.
1: Who okay, wants I to go first? Oh. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Screen hold hold up. <laughs> I think I, I, think I have a different perspective than um, many of those who are from a purely technical um, background. I'm more for a financial entrepreneurial background. But I'm a nerd, so I like technical things. But I'm not a programmer per se. I don't believe that Bitcoin can't be hacked. I don't believe that anything can't be hacked. If you can build it, then you can break it down. You know, if someone's able to construct it, someone's able to hack it. But that being said, you have to look at how it was built and what it was built upon. It was built upon cryptography. It was built upon the science of security and hiding things. So um, it is very difficult to be hacked. And the more mature it becomes, the harder it is to hack it. But if you do come up with things such as quantum computing or the ability to hack it, um, the algorithm can evolve just like the methods of hacking it evolve. So if Bitcoin is hacked, you know, it's hacked. Everything else is hackable as well. And if these technology behind Bitcoin is hacked, again, like another guest has said, the technology behind uh, what secures nuclear missiles, the 256-bit um, encryption behind all of your banking transactions, etc., are also hackable. So it's not as if Bitcoin cannot be hacked, but it is by far no less secure than some of the most important transactions taking place on us right now, such as military, such as very high-end financial. Um, Dave, spy, do, you,
0: Dave do you agree? Dave, do you agree? And then I want to find out from you, Andreas.
2: I, I agree mostly with that. I, I wanted to say that if the, if the Bitcoin, if the whole thing was hacked, and I'm going to disagree with Anthony on this, because at the beginning he said that the $10 billion market capitalization of Bitcoins, all Bitcoins that exist right now, that's a high incentive, but it's not. Because if it were hacked, people would know it was hacked, and the value of Bitcoin would drop to just about zero. And the hacker would lose. He would lose everything except the proof that he now has, oh, I hacked Bitcoin. Look at me. I'm so great. Yeah, you're great, and you have nothing. You have 10 billion little pieces of, of something that's not worth anything anymore because you ruined it.
1: And more importantly, what makes Bitcoin, you know, with so many brains behind it, if it were to be hacked, almost immediately it would be forked, which means an all shoot shoot off and somebody would fix the hack. And uh, yeah. again, just make something new. A Bitcoin to my knowledge has never been hacked, but there has been a hole, a hole was a floor, a security hole was found. Okay, it was found and it was sealed before anybody was able to take advantage of it. And the blockchain was forked and a new avenue of Bitcoin, uh, you know, became prevalent. And that's, and, Probably what would happen if someone successfully hacked it. I mean, once it is hacked, it will be discovered fairly quickly. And it will most likely be, you know, in my sort of creative imagination, forked rather quickly. The new fork will have the hack sealed and it will go on. It's uh, thicker than something that can evolve on its own. It doesn't evolve on its own, but it evolves as a result of uh, the work of everybody who basically buys bitcoin monitors it trades in it so it is not like there's a static it's not like a bank that you break in if you get into the vault you get the money run out that vault is moving it's evolving there are a lot of people building that vault constantly so when you break into the vault someone sees that you break into it they're going to seal the hole they're going to move the money and life goes on so it's not quite as simple it's not quite as simplistic as you know there's around the bank take the money and run.
0: andreas do you have input on this
3: well, yeah, I mean, I'd like to point out that, uh, you know, what we're talking about is, is a matter of degrees. Can an individual account be hacked? Can an individual have their money stolen? Yes, and that happens very relatively regularly for individuals who have their own computers hacked, not Bitcoin itself. Can you, has Bitcoin had bugs? Absolutely, it's had lots of bugs, and these have been fixed. And we continue to fix bugs on a daily basis. The, the point is, can you hack Bitcoin to such a degree that everything is hacked? tax top to bottom. And, and that hasn't happened. And even if uh, someone started to do that, they'd be discovered and we'd make the necessary changes to fix it. Um, just like any other system, you have to take uh, security mechanism measures. Um, I'll tell you one thing, though, uh, that won't happen with your Bitcoin account. No one's going to bail in your money for the Bitcoin account. No one has already <laughs> hacked it with a massive quantitative easing system that turns your money into worthless paper. Uh, I would say the dollar has already been hacked at a massive, Level, uh, Most of us are just not aware of it. So, you know, it's all a matter of perspective and risk. Uh, and uh, Bitcoin represents some risk, uh, but it also gives a lot of control and power to the individual user. Uh, whereas in other systems, you know, just because you see a number on your bank statement doesn't mean your money is actually there or that when you go to take it out, it will be there for you, as people in Cyprus found out very recently. So, you know, you have to take every financial system and look at its weaknesses and risks. And Bitcoin has its technological risks, but it also has a lot of security and control.
0: And that's, that's beautiful. And my last question to all of you, and thank you very much, Terry. Great questions. Thank you. Uh, is... And then I want to get to uh, the crowdfunding side. And if you all would like to stay on, you're more than welcome. And if, you're, if you feel that you've had the Bitcoin flight, then you may uh, say goodbye. But uh, I, the last question regarding Bitcoin is the following. Ellen Brown, who wrote Web of Debt, who's working on a public banking system, feels, and along with other people, that it's, uh, that it's a speculative bubble, that it's speculative and it's also a bubble. Do you agree? Obviously, you don't. I, I don't think any of you would agree. But I'd like to know your response, starting with you, Dave.
2: Um, well, first, I have to think of what exactly do people mean when they say a bubble? Or well, what they mean is they're predicting that it will pop. And Bitcoin has popped several times, but it's still worth more than half of its all-time high, let's say. Um, so... And as far as being speculative, you know, speculation is what got us into the air and airplanes on the part of the Wright Brothers. Um, and there's all kinds of things where we speculate, and we think, and we try stuff, and certain things don't work, work but other things do work. Uh, Bitcoin appears to be working, and I don't expect that to stop. So I, you interpret the answer about whether or not it's a bubble any way you want, but is it going to pop? So it pops every now and then, but, you know, it, it starts inflating again because it has value.
0: Okay. Reggie, what is your answer to this?
1: Well, um, I tried to answer that in part in my introduction that as a standalone currency, it does look bubbleish, But for what it is, a currency with its own transmission system that allows you to totally sidestep all money center banks, all central banks, including the granddaddy the Federal Reserve, uh, Citibank, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs and the fact that it's instantaneous transmission of currency uh, of value. Um, and I actually just skipped the surface. It is also a matter of, of decentralized decision-making. Um, you can take Bitcoin and you can move real estate along a blockchain. That's something that is in R&D. In my house, in my labs right now, we're actually transferring real estate along a blockchain, into uh, intellectual, capital, and property, a whole variety of things. Um, I think it's undervalued but it's undervalued due to a drastic misunderstanding. But that is as a uh, decentralized system of trust, uh, decentralized leisure, and not just as a currency. Um, now, as for the bubble and comparisons to um, things such as tulips, you know, Bitcoin has a significant <laughs> intrinsic value. Uh, the intrinsic value of a tulip, best-case scenario, is a flower, a plant, some stems. Okay, the value of a system that allows you to sidestep the most powerful financial institution in the world. And it's 10 major shareholders, uh, the money center banks. You know, let's put a value on that. You know, more than an ounce of gold, more than an ounce of uranium, platinum, plutonium. But again, people are looking at it um, and and comparing it to a dumb fiat currency such as a dollar or a euro. And they simply don't understand the system, which is understandable in and of itself. But I think it's the responsibility of the media to and the financial pundits who comment upon it to understand what it is they're commenting upon. And that's why we have shows such the US.
0: Thank you. Andreas, what is your what is your feedback on this?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of the people who are buying Bitcoin right now are, are doing pretty wild speculation because of the price without really understanding the fundamentals. So there's certainly a bubble sentiment. And we have seen four pops so far. Each time it popped to about half its high and then it recovered and quickly surpassed the previous high and has increased in value since. I mean, this is going to pop several times more. Um, it's part of the adoption curve at the moment that it will go in, in these rapid rises and then pop and then retreat a bit and then keep rising again. I think we're going to see this pattern. You know, The internet had a very big bubble in 2000, um, and yet what, what was left behind was a tremendous amount of value and investment, and it didn't invalidate the underlying fundamentals. I don't think the people investing understand the fundamentals, but that doesn't mean they're not there. Uh, this is the internet of money, and it's enabling hundreds and hundreds of startup companies, and enormous Amounts of investment. This is not just about using Bitcoin to take a small market share of the existing economy and to do transactions in the existing economy any more than the Internet was about uh, taking over the telephone calls uh, between different countries until you know, all of the calls were on the Internet, and then we won. Now, the whole point is that this is creating its own economy within Bitcoin with startups, with innovation, with financial innovation, with new jobs, and people being paid entirely in Bitcoin, and that creates intrinsic value as well. You know, there's the fact that it's a very useful currency, There's the fact that it has its own economy. There's the fact that it's unleashed a wave of innovation. And there's a lot of investors uh, investing in real tangible innovation in here. So, you know, just because most people are investing because it's a bubble and don't understand the fundamentals doesn't mean the fundamentals aren't there.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank Reggie Middleton for joining us to talk about Bitcoin as a decentralized payment system, as a trading platform, as a way to do business. Reggie, thank you so much for joining us. I learned a lot from you, as I always do. I think we all learn a lot from you. And have a great day. Lots of love to your children. Thanks again.
1: Okay. Thank you very much.
0: All right. So we are going to the crowdfunding session. Now, 34 years ago, I started my version of crowdfunding. The version was that I wanted to set up something to bypass venture capital, and my vision was to use Western Union to pump payments to bank accounts, in other words, for people whether they had cash or whether they wanted to use wire services to fund next generation solutions and discoveries. And I, I was under the impression 34 years ago that this would happen. I just didn't understand why it couldn't happen 34 years ago. Well, I understand there was no Internet. There wasn't a consciousness. Most people didn't understand central banking. In other words, the Internet has allowed people to learn a lot about their world and technology. So I want to introduce you again to Sam Guzik, who is a SEC lawyer. He's a corporate securities lawyer, and he has uh, two websites, corporatesecuritieslawyerblog.com and goziklaw.com And I was very excited because I went to Ruth Hedges' crowdfunding conference in Henderson, Nevada, Crowdfunding Roadmap. I want to thank her for making that happen. It was an extremely educational conference. And for those of you who really want to understand both donation and equity-based crowdfunding, you really should attend her conference. I also want to thank Michael Murkowski. Uh, of uh, uh, StockDiagnostics.com for mentioning this to me so that I could go and attend. And it was at this conference where I talked to hundreds of people, sat in the front row, asked a lot of questions. They they were looking at me like I was Columbo. Thank God I don't look like Columbo. I'm sorry, Robert Falk, or Peter Falk. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you probably didn't have enough coconut oil. I'm very sorry about the whole thing. And Sam was by far the most clear the most knowledgeable about crowdfunding at the, at the equity level, particularly when the ban, the securities ban, had been lifted in September from the JOBS Act. And I've invited him here, and we're going to talk about, really, where does the rubber meet the road? Is this equity really available? What are the details? And so, Sam, I'd like you to explain what really happened, what is equity crowdfunding What is the reality of securities and whether we can raise money using equity crowdfunding?
4: Okay, great. Um, First, let me just give you, if I can, just a little bit of background here on crowdfunding. Crowdfunding really became a phenomenon through the Internet back in 2007, 2008. You had a major platform, very visible, called Kickstarter. Uh, Crowdfunding essentially is getting uh getting large groups of people to donate typically smaller amounts of money on an internet platform and it takes a bro- it's a broad spectrum it can be a social project it can be a charitable project civic pro- pro- project and what happened along the way it can be people use it to pre-sell consumer products for their business but what happened one day is somebody decided hey I'd like to crowdfund and give people an interest in my business the problem with that is back in 1933 This country passed a law called the Securities Act of 1933, and basically what it says, if you want to sell securities, then you either have to register those securities with the SEC or you have to find an exemption. And guess what? There was no exemption because you're going out to large numbers of people who you have no relationship with, and that's what the registration process was intended to apply to. Uh, so what happened was the folks that really were got behind crowdfunding, they went to Washington, they knocked on the door of a lot of people, and that resulted in the JOBS Act of 2012 being passed in April of 2012. Um, and that set up a structure to basically create an, a, an exemption from federal securities laws for crowdfunding. Now, the unfortunate part is that Congress left the implementation of Crowdfunding to the SEC through the rulemaking process. So they were supposed to do that by order of Congress in 270 days. They took twice as long. They issued proposed regulations actually in October uh, of this year. Um, They put them out to the public comment through a 585 page. Release Uh, the comment period ends uh, beginning in February. Hopefully, we will have legal, and I'm sure we will have legal crowdfunding in the traditional sense sometime towards uh, the middle of the fall of this year. Uh, So that that's the general landscape for crowdfunding. Now, what also happened in September of 2013, also as part of the Jobs Act, is. in the context of not not really internet based offerings, not traditional based offerings, but something what i 'll call rich man 's crowdfunding, which is the laws were, were changed to allow uh, under certain circumstances companies to do uh, to use public solicitation advertisement to go out to the world, advertise private investments. Um, and that was something that was previously illegal. The, the catch is it's only available to credit investors. So if you don't have a million-dollar net worth, excluding your home, if you don't make 200000 a year, then guess what? You're out of the picture. So that's not your traditional crowdfunding, and so I want to I draw that line here. So the good news is we should have real crowdfunding legal sometime this year. You really
0: think that that's going to happen? Uh, I mean, you really think that they're going to they're going to they're going to make this available to everybody and anybody to be able to advertise and market their product or business or project. And you know, you saw me sat in the front row of this conference, very upset that it wasn't ready yet, but to answer that question, would you?
4: Well, in in terms of the timing, I can tell you last week I was in Washington DC, I spoke at an SBA roundtable and I looked across the the room to the head of the office of small business uh, who had a staffer there Uh, they're both responsible for writing 585 pages of rules they're committed to get this thing done there's massive massive pressure coming out of congress to get this thing done so it's more than just an economic a social issue or a legal issue this is a political issue that has an extremely high priority and visibility it will get done it will get done this year
0: that's i am so excited because to me this is the future and the potential medium by which new jobs are going to happen if you can open up the flow of capital to companies, you're going to open up the flow of potential jobs. So to me, it's an economic incentive. It's an imperative. Excuse me. It's an economic imperative. I'd like to uh, I'd like to invite Andreas and Dave oh, and, yeah. and uh, any one of you want to start with any question or comment.
3: I'd love to make some comments on this because what's interesting about this particular issue is the Bitcoin also enables through the distributed asset ledger for the issuance of voting shares in a distributed corporation but it does this in a way that allows anyone anywhere in the world to do this. so you know we have three scenarios here one is only accredited investors the other one is consumers uh... just in the u.s. being able to fund these uh, companies through the jobs act and bitcoin offers this third option which is any company anywhere in the world going public on the bitcoin blockchain and issuing voting and dividend-bearing shares to anyone in the world without identification and creating a global shareholder community. Now if you look at those three options, which one do you think is going to take off faster? I think the SEC is going to be left behind in the dust in terms of making these regulations fast enough. Because if you can already do it on the Bitcoin blockchain, that's going to bring in an enormous amount of investors from all around the world able to invest directly in Bitcoin and Bitcoin companies um, and without any of these rules and regulations, essentially just directly buy uh, a, a stock on the blockchain.
0: Uh, Sam, would you like to respond to that?
4: Sure, sure. Um, I, this is Your area is a little bit above my pay grade when we get into these and and, and, and and so on and so forth but let me let me speak to what I do know um, as far as crowdfunding, uh, whether we like it or not in the equity side it 's a creature of law it 's a creature of statute um, it's being, uh, it 's it's, being it 's being questioned and challenged by consumer advocacy groups who are concerned about protecting investors, to the SEC. Uh, It's a fact of life for them now, but they are going to move cautiously and and will, and and most importantly, it's a completely new system that's being integrated with our securities laws, and that's kind of like oil and water. Um, so that's not, that's going to take a little bit of time. It's not going to get done right the first time. It's going to take a few iterations. Uh, maybe there will be some changes to the rules once they come out. Maybe Congress is going to have to do some fixes. Um, so it's going to be a slow process, and I think really you're going to expect to see equity crowdfunding, because it is here to stay, really come into its own in about five years from now. And, and, and one of my passions is to be involved, I'm very involved in creating the rules uh, and is so, so it works as well as it can in the beginning, because if it doesn't work well in the beginning, uh, it's a problem. So I, I certainly expect, and, I, and I'm really excited to hear, and I'd love to hear more uh, after the show about issuance of shares and dividends through uh, th- through this new channel of the Internet. Uh, it sounds fascinating to me, and I'm sure it it's real, uh, and it's something that w- will happen quickly, because that's the nature of the Internet.
0: Dave, would you like to respond to what Sam just said?
2: Yeah, I think, um, I was going to say this while Andreas was talking about Bitcoin, because I think his, the, what, what Andreas presented is really great. But at this point in time, I think it's illegal. Um, and I also think that there's a lot of things that are illegal and they're really helping our economy. So basically it's the black market. Um, And I know a lot of people hear black market or illegal or whatever, whatever, and it makes them nervous and upset, and they don't want anybody doing that. And that's to me, that's horrible. It's a sign of brainwashing because people confuse the term illegal with the term immoral. And those are two different classes of behaviors. And there's a speech by Martin Luther King, and I think he erroneously attributed this to Thomas Jefferson or somebody else did, but Martin Luther King said, we have the duty to break those laws, which are immoral, because, you know, it, those, those behaviors that we consider doing and the government says, oh, you can't do that, uh, we consider doing those behaviors because we thought we saw good in them. And if we let uh, the government stop us from doing good behaviors, uh, you know, the, the positive results that we would have achieved are not going to be here. And that's our fault because we let ourselves be controlled, and there's something wrong with that. So I applaud the position of Bitcoin in getting around those laws, even though it's illegal. It's not, there's nothing immoral about that. The immorality in advertising your scheme to the public only exists if you're running a Ponzi scheme, you know, if you're made off.
3: But if you're I- honest – go ahead. Uh, I just want to disagree that it's illegal because what we're talking about here is jurisdiction. It would be illegal for U.S. companies to use this scheme in order to do crowdfunding. Uh, but it wouldn't be illegal for U.S. individuals to invest uh, their Bitcoin in companies that are listed abroad or that are registered abroad that decide to collect funds this way. And what that's going to, that is really a jurisdictional issue, not a matter of law. It's a matter of the law in the U.S. does not allow companies to crowdfund this way. And what that will do is it will put tremendous pressure on the U.S. because if uh, Singapore or Macau or Cyprus or Malta or Liechtenstein or whatever decide that they're going to allow this and make it a matter of law in those countries to crowdfund this way, all of the Bitcoin startups and all of the companies that want to do crowdfunding this way will move to those locations jurisdictionally. And they'll crowdfund from there, so it's going to put U.S. companies the distinct disadvantage you know this is not a matter of something that's illegal at all it is perfectly legal in other jurisdictions and what it does is essentially provides competition for the jurisdictional aspects of the SEC and if the SEC decides to take five years to do crowdfunding and Bitcoin crowdfunding happens in two years and it happens in jurisdictions that are more welcoming to it, what that's going to do is it's going to push all of those funds and all of those companies and all of those jobs outside the U.S. So I think you're going to see tremendous pressure on the SEC to adapt to this new reality.
0: So I
3: guess I, I was thinking of the companies in the U.S.
0: Okay, no problem. Oh, they're
3: not going to use it. They're absolutely not going to use it, which means the companies in the U.S. will be at a distinct disadvantage because while the rest of the world or in many jurisdictions can move, Uh, and crowdfund internationally, U.S. companies won't be able to do that. I think the opportunity for investors, however, to use their Bitcoin to invest in this new economy is is tremendous because it opens up not only a global pool of companies, but a global pool of investors without accreditation, uh, without intermediary stock markets, without counterparty risk, to directly invest in a new economy. Wait, hold on one
0: second. Would you all stand by for just a moment? We're going to go to a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Uh, I just wanted to let you all know that Michael Markovsky is the founder of StockDiagnostics.com. And Forbes magazine calls him one of its top 50 investors. He is a big proponent of crowdfunding. And he has a website called OnlineFinancialSector.com. And he's created a video called Crowdfunding is Driving Stock Markets to New Heights. You may want to take a look at that. He is an entrepreneur and a visionary investor. He's made a lot of calls about the markets for many years. He has several organizations. He is a big bull when it comes to crowdfunding. He was also at Ruth Hedges' crowdfunding conference in Henderson, Nevada. And you want to be watching Michael Murkowski and go to the site onlinefinancialsector.com. All right. We want to, first of all, have Sam Gozek. Respond to what you both said, and then we'll have you both come back in. And we also have someone on the Starship Bridge. Sam.
4: Sure. I just wanted to address, I think, the the first point that was made in this last dialogue, which is interesting, the distinction between legality and morality. And I think that's especially appropriate for crowdfunding and specifically equity crowdfunding. I mean, we have this statute that was passed back in 1933. It's here. It's here. Uh, we have the SEC it was created in 1934 it's here they have their function but crowdfunding as a phenomenon started out uh, 2006 2007 uh, today it's a multi-billion dollar industry I mean there's literally billions of dollars a year in crowdfunding uh, that flows flows through that ecosystem um, and is totally unregulated and essentially is also fraud free uh... because of the people who in the industry who want to make it work and are self-regulating um, unfortunately because we have securities laws in place we now have this overlay of complexity and some might say unnecessary complexity uh... and, and so we needed congress to act um, and the reason I think things that are going to take a little bit of time is because once Congress gets involved, lobbyists get involved, special interest groups get involved. So the crowdfunding statute doesn't quite work out as one person's innovation and idea. Uh, it's, it's, it's a law by committee. And, and then we have the SEC who's very, very tentative, uh, works in a political environment, is more reactive than proactive and certainly not creative. Um, so we're going to have a process, but I think five years from now, we'll be looking back, and we will see a very vibrant ecosystem, which, from, from my point of view, the biggest value is uh, the crowd, equity crowdfunding will be a huge magnet for entrepreneurial activity in the United States. That, to me, it's as big as value. Uh, And it's going to attract people, ideas, it's going to get them going and moving on projects that they never started on, even if they don't ultimately use crowdfunding. Uh, They may wind up going a different route.
0: so I, I, I want to add something to this, which is that I've had a major, major issue with the SEC as, a, as an organization and consciousness, because since the very beginning, the SEC has not allowed people like me without having a huge net worth from raising money. I would have had to have had a securities license. I can't advertise. I can't market what I'm doing. You have to gingerly be careful and afraid. God forbid you could be breaking a law. It should never even occur. All this should be thrown out, totally thrown out for entrepreneurs, visionary people, pioneers, any creatives, anybody from anywhere should be able to raise money for their venture. And one of the things I love about crowdfunding, and particularly donation-based crowdfunding, is we can do it. The sad part is that, while the equity side lags and takes its own organic time due to really to politics and lobbyists. I love what you said, Andreas, that it's in other jurisdictions, we can rock and roll. All of this can be integrated. And my question is to Dave, do you agree with this?
2: Well, sure. Yeah. If you, if you're going to, if you're going to find another jurisdiction where what you're doing is, is legal, then that's a, that's a good way to go, but I think it's a mistake to let, like I was saying before, you let, well, I, I want to bring up the example of prohibition. You know, this country decided that alcohol was bad in, what, 1918? And a few years later, juries refused to convict people who broke that law. And the, the states, I don't know the details, but my theory is the states decided this is costing us too much because we have our, you know, our agents go out and catch people breaking the law, and then we try to convict them, and the juries say no, and so they, they repealed prohibition. And, and I think that's, that's the right path. We have to, we have to see through the, the laws and say, well, that's a bad law. I'm not going to follow that law. That's silly. And I, I was wondering, I wanted to ask Sam this question. Has, have people been prosecuted? for breaking the SEC rules against against crowdfunding, for example? And in those prosecutions, do those people get jury trials?
4: Well, <clears throat> really there hasn't been, with, with maybe one exception, there really hasn't been any use of illegal crowdfunding where somebody is really crowdfunding, uh, as opposed to somebody putting up a site and saying we're crowdfunding and the whole thing is a complete fraud, there's, there's, there's nothing there. Um, that hasn't happened. What you have seen is you've seen some state regulators, not the SEC, some state regulators uh, who don't like crowdfunding, and they have come down on certain people in, 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 in certain areas. I, I don't want to get into that. The real, the real risk, and I just want to get this message out, is unfortunately... When crowdfunding becomes legal, the reason you want to comply with the laws is because if you don't comply with the laws, the problem is not the prosecutor, it's not even the SEC. It's the people who you give money to who decide that it didn't work out the way they wanted, or maybe they need the money to buy a new car, and they go to some lawyer and they say, can I get my money back? Um, but and, that happens and,
0: anyway, right now, even without crowdfunding. That happens all the time, doesn't it, with investments? Some investment well, goes bad, and even though everything was disclosed and it's buyer beware, people still do that.
4: But with, with, with securities, sales of securities is black and white. You either follow the rules or the investor has a right to get his money back. So <laughs> it's, it's much easier, unfortunately. So that's really the risk. And, and the risk, too, is on not just some company that may be out of business, but the individuals that are running their company, because they'll have personal liability. So that's the thing you need to worry about it's not really the government uh civilly or it's the criminally. individual investors I- exactly and and then uh, you know I'll I'll do say something self-deprecating it's the lawyers out there who will you know <laughs>
0: <laughs> That but, was the but, end of Sam Guzik's law practice <laughs> he just yeah, did yeah. himself in <laughs> yeah.
4: but, but well, yeah I'd,
3: I'd like to comment a bit on this uh, this idea because we seem to hold the SEC as uh, somehow protecting investors um, by reducing risk or eliminating risk in investments, and, and that's not really the mandate of the SEC. And if it is, that, if if it is, or well, whatever the mandate of the SEC is, let's look at the facts. You know, you have the big banks colluding to fix uh, LIBOR. No one goes to jail. They're colluding to fix gold prices. No one goes to jail. They use high-frequency trading to uh, to front-run order orders against their customer in, uh, interests. No one goes to jail. HSBC was caught money laundering hundreds of billions of dollars. No one went to jail. They stole a trillion dollars through mortgage fraud in 2008. No one went to jail. They rigged CDO markets. No one went to jail, and now they're going after crowdfunding as their prosecution. Like, (laughs) You know, there's an enormous amount of hypocrisy here, because at the end of the day, they're not protecting consumers or investors. What they're doing is they're setting up a framework that prevents competition against the big banks and prevents competition against the stock markets. So, you know, we need to take a careful look at what the SEC is actually achieving, other than simply slowing down competition for the big boys and protecting them from prosecution by giving them these sweet deals where they pay a fine that's less than the profits they made from the fraud. And you reward that behavior, it's going to come back.
0: I love it. I love it. Hold on one second, everybody. We have somebody from the Starship Bridge open up the bridge again. Introduce
5: yourself, please. Terry Woodward. Welcome back. Thank you. Uh, I have a question uh, regarding the legality of Bitcoin in U.S. transactions versus international transactions. Um, what is the uh, legality of Bitcoin uh, regarding transactions conducted in the United States versus internationally? And how is a person to, a layperson, to determine uh, in what jurisdictions a Bitcoin is legal versus illegal? And what is then the motivation for anyone to employ Bitcoin then in uh, the uh, crowdfunding transaction if, they, if the legality is undetermined?
3: Who would like to answer that that first? Financial enforcement, FinCEN, the Financial Crime Enforcement Network, has issued guidance, and they've said that... Uh, Individuals using Bitcoin to buy uh, products, uh, goods, or services um, are not breaking the law that it's perfectly legal uh, for them to do so, and they don't require any licensing. You know, in the U.S., uh, uh, actions are legal until there is a law saying otherwise. You don't need a license to do something, um, and unless it is illegal, then it is de facto legal uh, under the rights given by the Constitution. So, you know, we have the right to, to free association, and money is a form of expression. You can use Bitcoin in the U.S. legally to trade with anyone you want. You can also use uh, Bitcoin internationally to send money abroad. And there's, uh, there's no law that says you can't do that. So uh, from a legal perspective, that's key. What we were talking about before is whether companies that are registered can basically go public and IPO without the SEC. And, of course, there are laws against that. The Securities Act uh, says you can't do that. So companies can't do that, but there's nothing stopping an individual from investing or sending their Bitcoin anywhere um, in order to pay someone. As long as they're not violating one of the existing laws, uh, you know. For example, uh, you can't send money to Iran because it's under sanctions, and you can't send money to certain organizations because, you know, they're on blacklists. But other than that, you know, any individual in the United States can do with their money and send their money wherever they want. Uh, there's no law against that.
0: Do you have a response to that, Sam?
4: Uh, no, I think that, that pretty much d- describes it. The, the securities laws are, in theory, they're there to protect investors um and if if investors don't want to be protected then chances are they're not violating any laws and and you're correct there there are no uh laws that i'm aware of uh on the on the uh that would preclude an investor uh to me it's no different than let's say a barter transaction i mean it's uh that's uh don't be my thoughts
3: Okay, what and, about- and we have specific guidance from the government saying exactly that. So, right, you exactly. know, this is not just something that is a gray area. Well, you know, the federal government has already uh, issued opinions on the matter and said that it is perfectly legal. Now, if you want to exchange dollars for Bitcoin, then that means you are a money services or a money transfer bureau and you have to be licensed under state law. Uh, and if you uh, if you operate as a, as a company that issues securities, you have to be licensed by the SEC. But other than that, um, they made it very clear that individual use of Bitcoin is perfectly legal.
0: Uh, did you did you get your question answered? And do you have any other questions? Yes,
5: uh, my I guess I was uh, didn't understand with respect to the difference between corporations and individuals and the legality of the Bitcoin. So thank you for clearing that up.
3: You're welcome.
0: Um, Does anybody have anything else they'd like to say right now with respect to either crowdfunding on a donation level or crowdfunding actually possibly being involved with Bitcoin and Bitcoin actually being the funding mechanism or the money that's being used to do crowdfunding financing?
3: I'd, I'd like to simply add that uh, you know, we, we think about uh, Bitcoin as a payment network and then you know, how much of the existing economy flows through Bitcoin. But the existing economy is in a state of depression and stagnation right now, uh, with the exception of a few sectors involved in war and things like that. Uh, the, the great thing about Bitcoin is not that it's enabling us to capture more of the outside economy, but it's generating its own economy. It's generating liquidity in Bitcoin. People are willing to work for Bitcoin. And they're funding companies with Bitcoin, which is creating its own economy. And this economy is now incredibly vibrant. I've looked at more than 400 startups. Emerging just in the last four months, uh, which are tracking and are getting funding from investors all around the world, and every day we hear announcements of more and more companies uh, getting large influxes of investment, sometimes in dollars or yen or whatever, and sometimes directly in Bitcoin. Um, 100% of my income is in Bitcoin, and I'm working entirely in the Bitcoin economy. And what that's doing is it's creating this little spark of economic growth in the middle of stagnant economies all around the world, where the one thing that's really working and working very well is bitcoin innovation and the economy that it's spawning so let's not think about how much we take over the rest of the economy let's think about the bitcoin economy itself
0: i think that's lovely dave what do you think about what andreas just said
3: uh, oh i agree
2: i think he's got it spot on now and, you know i wanted go ahead. i wanted to address something sam said and and i heard him objecting to andreas when Andreas is blaming the SEC, that state regulators, not the SEC, but state regulators, have come down on people, you know, trying to do crowdfunding, and I think that's uh, that's an insidious. Uh, it's uh, you know, it's horrible. It's um, but I think it's um, taking advantage of those state regulators. I mean, when you become a state regulator, you're given a certain amount of power, and it's uh, it's a uh, heady. You know, it, it goes to your head. It, it makes you become a bad person in some cases. Because are those guys really trying to protect those, those little investors who don't have – they're not accredited investors, but yet they want to participate in this company? And, you know, the company is saying, okay, let's do it. And then here comes the state regulars. Say, oh, no, you can't do that because yeah, – yeah. and what is he really saying? He's saying you're not rich enough. You're not accredited. So you're not rich enough to take that risk. And isn't that a personal decision? And the Wait. state regulator is taking that personal decision away.
0: I think you're right, but I don't know if that's what Sam said. I think, uh, cor- correct, uh, correct the situation. I think, no. Sam, you were talking about what the SEC, how yeah. they
4: operate, right? What, what I'm saying is, thus far, at least in the crowdfunding area, the SEC has been passive. It just has not been on the radar right. of Congress basically force it on them, and so they're dealing with it through the rulemaking process. That's, that's their only ro- role at this point, they're being very cautious because it's a completely new market. Yeah, uh, David and, brings and,
3: up a good point, but,
4: though. No, I want to get to that in a second, but I just want to contrast that and draw a sharp line between the SEC and the state regulators. Uh, the SEC is dealing now with the market with super high-risk companies, the highest risk, and the investors that they are most charged with protecting, which is unsophisticated investors. Okay, Now, so they have a difficult task as a regulatory body. Uh, states are very different. Um, and in fact, I just had an article published last week on exactly this subject, which is the SEC needing to protect small business and how it hasn't been advocating for small business and a major reason for that, not the only reason, are state regulators Uh, and how I've seen a dramatic change in that in some some rulemaking releases that came out in December. So if you want to read something a little bit hopeful about when our government maybe is going and the SEC is going in a better direction, uh, take a look at uh, Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance and Finance, or if you Google my last name and Harvard, it'll come up, and you'll see that, and, and the reason I wrote the article is to, give, to help give some encouragement and backbone to the SEC to really stand up to the state regulators because they are impeding our economy, the national economy, job growth, they're interfering with entrepreneurism and the flow of capital across the board. Uh-huh. I, th-
3: I think D- David brings up a really good point, and one of the things to point out here is that one of the most active state regulators in this space is, is New York State with uh, DFS. And, and this is the with- absolute height of hypocrisy these are the same people who impotently stood by as the banks walked away with trillions of dollars in outright fraud and they have whistleblowers and evidence up to their gills and they have been impotent in prosecuting a single banker for that fraud and now they turn that impotent rage in their inability to prosecute the big dogs down in wall street just 40 blocks south of their offices and instead they turn it around on a little cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and tried to regulate the hell out of it. I think that is just so ironic. And, and really, it's the it's height of hypocrisy.
0: Is it the fox guarding the hen house?
3: <laughs> oh, no. It's, it's, it's absolutely It's a group of foxes all working Indeed. together. It's, it's you know, a, fox it's a family. completely corrupt system, top to bottom. It, and they <laughs> use Bitcoin as a little distraction so that nobody pays attention to the, to the trillion stolen and the complicity of these regulators who stood by idly as this happens. And even now, have not brought a single high level prosecution against these things, even as more and more fraud comes out. Just this week, we found out that they're fixing the, the gold markets. Um, well, that's been going that's on after a long time. Libor.
0: That's been going on a long time, fixing the gold markets and the silver well, markets. Well, now they They've have evidence and what's
3: going to happen, not a single prosecution, but let's make sure we go after and regulate Bitcoin. That's ridiculous.
4: Well, I think when you'll see things start this change is when Wall Street gets into the picture, when they start putting some skin in the game. Um, and and then I think you'll you'll see things change rather quickly, both in terms of laws, in terms of regulations, and most importantly, the attitude of regulators, um, especially in New York. I mean, New York is a financial center, um, and certainly
0: you're you're, you're licensed you know, in New York too, aren't you? That's correct. See, well, we New can always right go right to New York is a and crime call measure. Sam.
4: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so i am not I'm surprised at all that this is happening. It's happening in New York with a financial with a financial situation with securities, it's not necessarily New york, it's usually not New York, but other states like ohio massachusetts uh, there's there's a number of them so
0: um I wanted to ask Andreas something about uh, correct me if I'm incorrect on this, but in one of your speeches, you talked about how only one billion people have access to money. And that the Bitcoin ecosystem or cryptocurrency represents another six and a half billion, can you explain yeah. that
3: yeah, so, so what i 'm talking about is why Bitcoin is so important to the other six billion, and what I want to clarify is i 'm not saying that uh, one billion only have access to bank accounts, as the number is much higher than that. Um, but, you know, there's a small sliver of the population, mostly the elites in, in Western countries that have access not just to bank accounts but to ample pools of credits and liquidity, uh, the ability to, to source funds to do... Uh, investments uh, without currency controls, the ability to start businesses and receive credits, the ability to list on stock markets, and the ability to trade internationally uh, without any restrictions. And then there's the rest of the world. Um, You know, some 3 billion people have no bank accounts at all and work in cash-only societies. Uh, And then there's another couple of billion people who have very, very little access to credit no access to international markets. And for these people, Bitcoin represents a lifeline that connects them directly to a vibrant global economy without any currency controls where suddenly they can interact with the rest of the world on the same basis as the tiny sliver of fully financialized uh, Westerners who we have now. So what this does is, just like the Internet allowed an Egyptian blogger to have a voice as strong as that of a CNN anchor and and speak truth to the world and have millions of people listen to him, now what Bitcoin does as the Internet of money is it allows any individual from a farmer in Kenya to to an import-export person in China or anywhere in the world, to suddenly participate in a vibrant global economy on the same basis and, and really invent and innovate in financial services just like Wells Fargo can or Bank of America can. That's an incredible amount of power, and the productive potential of bringing online all of these people into a new world economy is is really amazing.
0: I want to say something about Dr. Mohammed Yunus of the Grameen Bank, who founded a banking system based on uncollateralized lending something that was considered impossible, and he probably would have been assassinated if he dared tried it in the United States. But he did it in Bangladesh, and he came up with also all the protocols and processes for doing this. I interviewed him in 2003 in December, sent that interview all over the United States, and nobody was interested. And in 2006, he got the Nobel Prize. What's interesting to note is two years ago after he built, I think, a a billion-plus bank and of lending money to the poorest of the poor in Bangladesh and other countries, what was interesting is that the government of Bangladesh basically came to him, disagreed with his political philosophy, and said, get out, you're too old, and kicked him out of Grameen Bank. And I'm not going to let up on this, because in looking at things on a whole systems level, you look at what is the financial... How was Grameen started? What was the contractual arrangement in which Dr. Yunus signed a contract. Who did he sign a contract with? You know, Was it the Bangladeshi government? Because the devil's in the details. How is it that the government can go, as this man builds a banking system that's never been done, as far as we know, in the history of the world, and they can walk in as he pulls in a billion dollars and 30 years later and throws him out and says you're too old at age 70. And not one person across the world, not one government, Nobody can stop this. It's a confiscation. And what right, that well, what that I mean, tells us, wait a minute, Andreas, what that tells us in part is maybe had this been financed differently, maybe had it been crowdfunded, maybe had he had uh, better or more appropriate legal counsel with him so that he really understood his agreement, that could have never happened. Or could it have? Maybe the central bank would have confiscated it anyway, just the way the Federal Reserve can walk in and do $800 800 billion of credit default swaps and never have to answer to us how it happened, where it happened, who it happened with. What do you think?
3: I think this is a, really a symptom of centralized systems. You know, Bitcoin isn't the first digital money. It, you know, several others have happened in the past, but all of them suffered from a fatal flaw. They had a central organization or a central set of servers, and that provided a target for people to attack. And as a result, they were taken down. But uh, Bitcoin has no center. It's a completely decentralized form of money and a decentralized network of money. If we are able to do crowdfunding on Bitcoin or uh, peer-to-peer lending and micro lending. Uh, uncollateralized micro lending on Bitcoin. You know, there is no center, there is no guy to haul away, there is no organization to take over, there is no central server that you can attack. And, you know, decentralized systems uh, are less easy to corrupt, they're less easy to co-opt, and they survive longer because they're anti-fragile. So, um, you know, this is exactly the kind of lesson we need to learn from the past, which is that if you create a centralized system, those who have the power will shut you down um, because it competes against their interests.
0: And look, they waited till, he had the, till the bank had over a billion dollars. He set up Grameen Shakti. He set up Grameen Energy. He had Grameen Telecommunications. Imagine, you give the guy the Nobel Prize, right? But then what happened? He had lunch with Gordon Brown, went to London, and Gordon Brown talks him into a one-world currency. I don't know. What do you all think about having a one-world currency? Let's take your hit on it. Dave?
2: Oh, uh, That would be great. We already have one. It's called gold. We're inventing another one. It's called Bitcoin. As long (laughs) as there's no central authority issuing it, it's
0: great. Okay. How about you, Andreas?
3: Well, I I think that's absolutely right. We're not going to have one world currency, but we are going to have a much more competitive environment in currency because apart from Bitcoin, there are a number of other cryptographic currencies alongside, as well as precious metals. And this new model of organizing computer systems that allows you to have security and consensus through computation without a central authority, that's the core invention at the heart of Bitcoin. It takes out the central authority from the core of the network. And that has so many applications and will be part of our financial future. So, uh, yes, it's already happening and it's a very exciting time.
0: Sam, do you want to say a comment about whether you think there will be a one, whether there is a one world currency if we're heading toward it and what you're take is on this whole thing
4: um i you know i uh, it's a little above my pay grade but i can but (laughs) but what did resonate with me is yes we have gold and and it sounds like bitcoin uh is 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 going to find a place with gold in 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 the digital era in the internet era um it's it's easy to move bits over the internet than it is gold and I think that's <laughs> that—that's the difference right there. The internet is very, very powerful, powerful allocator of resources, um, and I think this is something that's going to become extremely powerful because the the internet is a great facilitator and a great allocator uh, of resources and information worldwide.
0: Well, everybody, I want to thank you all for being here, uh, Andreas Antonopoulos, Dave Scotes. Uh Sam yes, thank, you. thank you Thanks for
5: having me.
0: Sam Guzak and for those of you that would like to go to their websites, uh you can go to Guzak Law, G-U-Z-I-K, Law dot com, Antonopolis, A-A-N-T-O-N, O P O U L O S dot com, and Litmocracy, would you please spell that for me, Dave?
2: L I T mocrac
0: And I'd like all of you to please share this show. This is a rockin' and a rolling show. It's rainmaking time. And when we say it's rainmaking time, what we mean by that is people are coming together, commitments are being made, things are getting done. Things are moving, and it's the dawn of a new day. For those of you that would like to advertise on It's Rainmaking Time, whether you'd like a brief mention about you and your company or a more extensive explanation of who you are and what you do, call 626-398-8652, and I'd like to thank the Rainmaking Company for sponsoring this interview. Good night, everybody. It's Rainmaking Time. Wait, can I want to hear everybody say It's Rainmaking Time. Hold on one second. One, two, three three. It's, it's rainmaking making time. Uh, Woo! Good night. Thank good you. Night. Thank you, everybody.